You know, the, uh, the way that we think affects every area of our lives. Um, in business, in negotiating, the way we think, I remember going through negotiating training one time, and uh, they said, okay, here's the issue. Uh, there's two guys, and they both want the orange. So what do you do? And you argue back and forth, and I, I want the orange for this. I, you know, I want the orange. No, okay, so what we're going to do is... One, we're going to split it in half. One guy will cut and the other will choose. You may have done this with a dessert with your brother or sister or you cut the piece of cake and whoever cuts, the other person gets to pick, right? We've all done that. Um, but uh, they, they say, okay, that's what we're going to do. But then the more that they talk and the more that they confer, they realize one person wants the orange for the juice and the other person wants the orange for the rind because they're baking a cake. Well, now both of them get exactly what they want without having to compromise. But they did that through talking. It's the way we think, the way we approach things. Mandy and I, whenever we talk about a issue or something that we're going to do, um, a lot of couples do this. Uh, you start out talking and you realize, hey, we both have different perspectives of this issue. And at first you may go, whoa, we're on totally different sides of this issue. But the more you talk, the more you communicate, you get to the point that you're like, oh, our thinking is really more aligned than we thought because the more we talk, we get to, we figure it out. Our minds affect our attitudes. Um, I remember our daughter Faith would always use this term, choose joy. Um, and it's probably because we told her to do that all the time. Um, and so, but it, it, it got implanted into her heart, into her mind, to where she would be in a tough situation and be facing something challenging, and she would say, I need to choose joy. Um, it happens on a personal level. Uh, the way we think affects our attitudes. It affects our emotions. Um, it's very easy, it's, with our, it's in our, the way we think that allows us to either choose joy or choose depression. Um, to choose a positive attitude or to choose a negative attitude. Um, to allow ourselves to uh, view ourselves positively or negatively. It's in our minds that a lot of these things happen. And when you get to scripture, you see that Paul understood this. In fact, all throughout scripture, we see that the way we think is addressed all throughout Scripture. One of the things that Paul had addressed was in Ephesians where he talks about, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against rulers of darkness of this world. Well, if we don't fight with a physical flesh, how is it that we are fighting? How is it that Satan is attacking us? If he's not attacking us physically, he's going to be attacking us up here in our minds, the way we think. And when we come to this passage in 1 Corinthians, Paul is going to address how to deal with this divisiveness in the church. This divisiveness had overtaken the church. It had uh, begun to cause major problems. And he, in the first few chapters, he's working through and he's pointing out, hey, we have an issue. There's divisiveness in the church. And I was going to be, um, I was going to have the name of the lesson, and it's not, so don't write this down, how, dealing with divisiveness, part seven, um, because we've gone six lessons on this. 
But really we get to a point where he tells us how to deal with divisiveness. We get to the how-to part, and that's the title of the lesson today. And it really is dealing with divisiveness, part seven, but really it, the name of the lesson is how to deal with divisiveness. How to deal with divisiveness. I'm going to read the passage, and then we're going to get into it. So um, starting in 1 Corinthians 3, in verse 18, it reads, Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you thinks that he is wise in this age, he must become foolish so that he may become wise. For the wisdom of the world is foolishness before God. For it is written, he is the one who catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the reasoning of the wise, that they are useless. So then, let no one boast in men, for all things belong to you whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all things belong to you and you belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God. It goes on in chapter four, it says, let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy but to me, it is a very small thing that I may examine you or by, or, or by any human court. In fact, I do not even examine myself. For I am conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted, but the one who examines me is the Lord. Therefore, do not go on passing judgments before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts, and then each man's praise will come to him from God. So as we enter this passage, we see that Paul begins to give some very clear directives on how to deal with this divisiveness. Now, this divisiveness had originally started with one of the aspects being where they we would say, one would say, well, I am of Paul, and another one would say, I am of Apollos, and another one would say, I'm of Peter or Cephas. And they would begin to, there was these divisions in the church, and these divisions were causing problems and rifts. And so Paul was addressing that, and when he gets to this passage, he begins to put uh, give us what we are to do to deal with this. So the very first thing, A, is change your thinking. Change your thinking. You know, as we started, we were talking about the fact that our thinking is relevant to everything that we do, especially in the Christian walk. Um, Romans 12, 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed, how? By the renewing of your mind, the way you think. It needs to be changed. Um, Philippians 4, 8, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellent, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Let these things be in your mind. Be pondering them, be thinking about them, allow them to permeate and meditate upon these things. That's what we're to be doing. Second um, Corinthians 10 verses three through six says, "For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh, like he talks about in Ephesians, 
For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Um, you go back to Proverbs, keep your heart with all diligence from, uh, for from it flow the springs of life, the way you think. All throughout scripture, we are challenged to watch the way we think. Um, so the very first thing that Paul says we have to do to correct this divisiveness in the church, and this applies to so many areas of our life, but specifically what we're addressing in 1 Corinthians is that we have to change our thinking. So he shares four points under that section on what we're to do. The first thing is we need to have the correct view of ourselves. The correct view of ourselves. He says, let no man deceive himself. Much of the division in the church would be eliminated if individuals were not so impressed with their own wisdom, with their own perspective, with the way they viewed things. And the thing is, is our minds are easily tricked into thinking incorrectly. I know I've shared this story with you guys before, but whenever I was like seven or eight years old, um, my cousin, who's three years to the day older than me, he had everything that could possibly be had that had Star Trek on it. I mean, the lunchbox, his sheets on his bed were Star Trek. He had every toy, every action figure. He had the little communicator and the gun and everything. And he had me convinced that he was a member of the Star Trek Enterprise. I believed it. He told me and I believed it. I was like, wow, this is amazing. Do you talk to Captain Kirk? Yeah, I do, you know? And I believed him. Now, should I have believed him? No. He was a liar. He was trying to impress me. He was trying to make me think something that wasn't true. And we look at that now and we go, hey, that's funny. And it is, sadly, funny. Um, but our minds are easily deceived. Even today, at the age of 52, my mind can be deceived into thinking incorrectly. Your minds can be deceived into thinking incorrectly. And Paul is addressing saying, the very first thing you need to do is you need to have a correct view of yourself. A person who thinks that he is wise in this age, that is wise according to contemporary world human wisdom, does nothing but deceive himself. Now, um, the human wisdom, uh, the, what, the wisdom that, that Paul is talking about here is in regards to spiritual things, in regards to salvation, in regards to eternity, in regards to who God is and how he works. He's talking about those things. Paul is not talking about mathematics. There are people that are super smart in mathematics. There's people that speak multiple, multiple languages. There's people that correct your grammar every time you open your mouth to talk that are way smarter than you and I, or at least way smarter than I, me, us, collectively. There's people that are smart that in science and mechanics and mathematics and geography and all these different things, 
But what he's talking about is people that deceive themselves into being wise about the things of God and his word. Anyone who is self-deceived, as he talks about here, ought to become foolish. Now, that's a hard thing to do because if it says, let no man deceive himself, if any man among you thinks that he is wise in this age, he must become foolish. That's a hard thing for a man or a woman to do. If you feel that you are right, it is super hard to say, no, I'm wrong, right? It's hard for any of us, even when we realize, oh, okay, you're, you know what? Two plus two is four, not five. You're right. But I hate to admit that. I don't want to admit that I was wrong because pride comes to play. Our pride gets involved in that. When human wisdom becomes foolish, uh, where human wisdom becomes foolish and useless is in the matters concerning God. That's where it does not work. Even the Jews in Jesus' day were looking for the wrong type of Messiah. And they had grown up their whole lives in the synagogue, in the church, knowing God's truth of, his old, of the Old Testament, and they were looking for the wrong thing. And they were looking for salvation in the wrong way. And God was like, and Jesus was sharing with them, this is what's going to happen. And we talked about this a few weeks ago, that when Jesus said, I'm going to be taken, I'm going to be persecuted, I'm going to die. And Peter said, may it never be. That cuts clean across the way I think, the what I'm looking for in a Messiah. And Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. Because God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. Human wisdom has no way of discovering and understanding divine truth. Human wisdom can't. Now, the indwelling, it's through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in a believer that they understand and are able to grasp and see the truth of Scripture, of what God's doing. And even then, it's a challenge. So even Christians do not have a right to their own opinions about the things that God has revealed. Now, what's a challenge is when people's opinions begin to take rule over the truth of Scripture. That's a problem. When Christians start expressing and following their own ideas about the gospel, about the church, about Christian living, fellow believers cannot, can easily become divided because now we're dealing with people's opinions and not the truth of Scripture. Christians are no wiser in the flesh than unbelievers are. We're not. The first step in a Christian becoming truly wise is to recognize that his own human wisdom is foolishness. I do not have the ability to comprehend and understand apart from God revealing himself. Worldly wisdom is foolishness before God. That's what it is. It is foolishness. And we've talked about that in the past few weeks about how much knowledge God, God is omnipotent. He's all-powerful. He's omniscient. He knows everything. He's omnipresent. He's everywhere. And even in the sermon this morning when uh, Pastor Tom was talking, and he was, believe it or not, if you haven't gone, you're going to hear Pastor Tom cover 17 chapters of Revelation in one message. 
It's pretty amazing. He was going fast. But in that, at the end, he was talking about the fact that every single person in this room, in the world, is going to personally stand before Jesus Christ. Every single person is going to stand before Jesus Christ. God's omniscience, his omnipresence, he is sovereignly and providentially in control of all things. He knows everything that there is to know about you and I. And he is our creator and he is our God and we will stand before him. And he will either be, you are covered by my blood or you are rejected for all eternity. That's where we stand. That doesn't make sense to human wisdom, but that's the truth. And it's our pride that causes us to reject that. The church, going back to the function of div uh, divisiveness in the church and the way our minds work, the church must create an atmosphere in which the word of God is honored and submitted to in which human opinion is never used to judge or to qualify God's revelation. Now, the problem is in the church at Corinth, people's personal opinions began to rule over the truth of God's word. Because when they get to the point that they're like, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, their personal opinions are ruling over the truth of God's word. As far as, and so what we have to do is we have to submit our thinking to God's word. And that's a hard thing to do because we all tend to think that we're pretty smart. We tend to think that we have things figured out. But we have to submit the way we think to the truth of God's word. As far as the things of God are concerned, Christians must be totally under the teaching of scripture and the illumination of the Holy Spirit. Where the word of God is not set up as the supreme authority division is inevitable. It will happen. And here's why. Because if scripture is the supreme authority and you and I are members of a church together, then we can say, hey, we're approaching this issue and we see it differently. And why do we see it differently? Because we have different perspectives. We have different training. We've seen things differently. We have different backgrounds, the way we approach things, different attitudes, different spiritual gifts, all these different things that are different about you and I. But you and I are both believers in Jesus Christ. And if we both say this is the standard for everything that we're going to do within this church, the truth that God has revealed, then it doesn't matter my perspective. It doesn't matter my opinion. It doesn't matter my upbringing. It doesn't matter my biases, my political background, anything. It does not matter because what matters is that I align my thinking with this, the truth revealed in this book. And if you do the same thing, then guess what? we're both going to be on the same page. We may not see everything exactly the same, but we're going to align ourselves the same because God is not double-minded. God's not going to have two different perspectives. He's going to have one truth, one perspective. I love listening to Justin talk about the way the elders work in our church 
and how they come together, all these diverse group of guys, and they come together and their commitment to being bound to the truth of God's word and stand on that and how they come to consensus. It's an amazing thing. Where the word of God is not set up as supreme authority, division is inevitable. Uh, growing up, uh, I was in a home education program. So I was home learned just like you. Um, homeschooled. That was a, that was a, people that are homeschooled think that's funny. Home learned because it's not grammatically correct. Uh, was involved with a guy named Bill Gothard, ATA. Um, Bill Gothard, in that system, which was, in my opinion, was not a biblical-based system at the time, uh, Bill substituted his own perspective and his own ideas for the truth of God's Word. And I feel comfortable sharing this and talking about this because Tom has spoken about Bill Gothard from the pulpit. So I'm not doing anything that he, you know, our leader hasn't done. Um, Bill, even to the point that Mandy and I both worked at the headquarters up there in Chicago. I've worked directly under Bill. Um, Bill allowed his own perspective to supersede the truth of God's word. And then he began to teach that as truth. And that caused a lot of problems. Problems on a personal level for people because it was in opposition to and in contradiction to the truth of God's word. It caused problems for people in their churches because they're going to church and their pastor's teaching this and Bill is teaching this. Opposition, problems. It's because everybody wasn't founded on the truth of God's word. Bill was not in his teaching, a lot of his teaching. I'm not saying everything he said was horrible, but a lot of his teaching. The substitution is sometimes not intentional. But if you are not a student of God's word, if you are not committed to God's word, if you are not committed and faithful to implanting God's word in your mind, then you can very easily be pulled in a wrong direction in your thinking about anything. And that's what began to happen in Corinth. When the Bible was not studied carefully and not followed carefully, that's what happens. When the truth of Scripture is not the sole authority, men's varied opinions become the authority. Men's opinions become the authority. Pride is always at the heart of human wisdom. It is. The wisdom of this world, which is foolishness before God, it is difficult to teach a person who thinks he knows everything. You can't. The proper view of ourselves, the godly and true view, is that apart from the divine truth, we are fools with empty thoughts. We are nothing. Recognizing this truth opens the door to true wisdom and closes the door to division. Because if you and I, if everybody in this room is, as fellow believers, say, hey, we are going to be like-minded based on the truth of God's word, then there will be no division. Because God does not contradict himself. He's not. 
So, number one was the correct view of ourselves. Number two is the correct view of others. He says, so then, let no one boast in men, for all things belong to you, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, who is Peter. So, number one was the correct view of ourselves. We have to understand when it comes to division in the church of what they were dealing with, the first thing he said is you have to have the correct view of yourself. Apart from the truth of God's word, you're a fool. And the worldly mindset is foolishness to God. So if you align yourself with the worldly mindset, it's going to be foolishness. You have to get rid of that, swallow your pride and say, I need to learn the truth of God's word so that I can be aligned with him. And if we all do that, then we're all aligned. So that number one was the correct view of others. The second is the correct, uh, the number one is the correct view of ourselves. Number two is the correct view of others. They had a problem in the way they viewed the leadership in their church. So the second requirement for overcoming this division was to have the right view of others. Paul had spoken strongly against the special uh, loyalties to church leaders that they, they had in chapter 1 and earlier in chapter 3. But now the emphasis is different. Although these men should uh, not have been specifically elevated or revered, they were a great help and resource to the people in Corinth. Paul, Apollos, and Cephas. They all were ordained ministers, two of them apostles of Jesus Christ. They ministered and served in the church. They were doing a great and wonderful thing. So what happened? What was the problem? They taught the same truths from God uh, and were uh, from God and were meant by God to be a source of unity, not division to the church. The divisions that developed around them were based on people's attraction to their individual styles, personalities, uh, to their personal appeal, uh, of what appealed to the Corinthians themselves. So they're like, well, you know what? I really like the way that, I think, I think Jonathan looks way better in the pulpit than Justin does. So I'm going to be a follower of Jonathan. And another person would say, yeah, but Jonathan, have you seen his ties? Justin's ties are way better than Jonathan's. And people would begin to follow based on, or you know what? Um, Tom, man, he, he doesn't understand a stop time, man. He doesn't know when it's, that, like when that clock hits 12.05, he needs to be closing up because I got to go to lunch. And Justin, man, he is, I mean, by the book on the dot stop time. So I'm going to be a fan of Justin's. Is that the reason to cause division in the church? No. What happens today in churches is, well, I don't like this music. I don't like the way they, uh, it plays too many praise and worship songs. I want hymns. Well, I want hymns. I don't want too many praise and worship songs. I told somebody in the past, man, you got an iPod or a, it used to be an iPod back in the day. You got music on your phone, listen to whatever you want. When you come here, you're worshiping together with fellow believers and whatever they sing, let's sing with all our hearts in praise to the Lord. It may not be your favorite song, but that's okay. You're fellowshipping together, praising God. 
That should be our attitude. So what happened is church members began to boast of Paul or Peter or Apollos, and they began to give honor to one over another, and it caused divisions. Now, a pastor who carefully preaches and teaches God's word uh, and lives a life that is consistent with the truths that are being taught should be respected and should be followed. They should be because they are our spiritual leaders. Leaders mean they have followers, people that are following after them. They're setting the example. Paul did that multiple times. He said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Be imitators of me. And when we have that, and God has blessed us with that in this church, that we have men that we can follow. We have women leaders that we can follow, that are, we can model ourselves after. Um, one who is careless in preaching and living, uh, on the other hand, uh, in their preaching and living, on the other hand, does not deserve to be followed. In both cases, our response should be based on the leader's faithfulness to the word, not on his personality or style. If he is faithful, he is worthy of esteem. The Corinthians were fortunate to have the ministry of at least three outstanding pastors. Each of these men had special gifts and abilities that God had used to teach and to train and to instruct them. And these very leadership, uh, leaders should have enriched the church, not divided it. The problem was the thinking and the mindset of the Corinthians was not consistent with the truth of God's word. They instead were focused on what satisfied them and what their personal desires were, and they made that the focus instead of the truth of God's word. Because if they would have been focused on the truth of God's word and applying that truth in their lives and then going and living it out and allowing it to conform and transform their thinking and their hearts, then they would have been like-minded together and not divided. So, number three, they had to have the correct view of possessions. The correct view of possessions. It says uh, in verse 22, it says, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all things belong to you. When I first read this passage, I was like, I don't understand this. All things belong to you. I mean, my last name is not, my name is not Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos. All things do not belong to me. I don't understand. The third requirement that Peter, uh, that Paul was challenging them with was the fact that Overcoming division, in, in division is having the right view of our possessions. Not just physical possessions, but everything that we possess. This phrase continues uh, the list of all things that belong to us in verse 21. Not only are, are all godly leaders ours, the godly leaders are ours, that God has given to us to teach and to train and to instruct, but everything else from God is ours as well. As believers, we are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Jesus Christ, according to Romans 8, 17. That's our position. 
That's who we are. We are fellow heirs with Christ. And eventually, and you'll hear this morning from Pastor Tom, we will hear what we are going to inherit along with Christ when he comes and takes back the world. Everything in the world is his. We are fellow heirs with Christ. We are his. We have even inherited Christ's glory that he has been given from God, that we inherit that. It's been bequeathed to us. It's been given to us. It's been turned over to us by the Lord himself. That's what he's done. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose, according to Romans 8, 28. That is our possession. That's who we are, and that's where we're at. And it says the world or life or death or things present or things to come is totally inclusive. That's what he's doing. He's, he's being totally inclusive. There's nothing left out. Um, Paul begins and ends this declaration with all things belong to you. In Christ, all things are for our sakes and for our glory. All things. Specifically that world, even now, that term world, his main point is that the millennial kingdom and throughout eternity in the new heavens and new earth, we will possess the earth in a richer way. Everything in the earth we are going to possess along with Christ as his fellow heirs. That is an amazing mindset to have. And if we, if the church in Corinth, let's put it this way, if the church in Corinth had had a mindset of we our fellow heirs with Christ. We are in Christ. We are together with him. We have been granted his glory and eternity, and we have the mindset of we are brothers and sisters in Christ together with him. That mindset is the opposite of division. It is we are rowing this boat together. If you've ever been in a rowboat or in a canoe, I've never been in a rowboat. I've been in a canoe. If there are two people paddling and you're in the front and you're paddling, if the other person is not doing their job, not paddling, guess what happens? You will go in a circle. You will go nowhere. You're just on one side or you have to begin to switch and go to the other side. And I mean, I don't need that much workout. I'll just do one side. But if you're with somebody, you have to trust that they are paddling with you and you move in the right, the same direction. That's the mindset. We are together in the boat. We are both possessors of this boat. Let's move together so that we can move forward. That's in a boat, in a canoe. In church, we are together in Christ. We are moving towards the same goal, glorifying the Father, being a witness and a testimony of Him, being a light of Christ, being an a, a encouragement and discipling one another and praying for one another and going th uh, through the sanctification process together. We are like-minded together. And to focus on the tie that Jonathan wears versus the tie that Justin wears and who I'm going to be a follower of is a waste 
of time and energy. We are to be about, Jesus said, I am about my father's business. And he said that at 12, 13 years old to his parents. Why, where were you? Did you not know that I'd be here in my father's house being about his business? That should be our mindset, to be about our business, his business. Christ is the creator and sustainer of this world. If we are in Christ, we have everything. Everything that God knows that we need, he gives to us. He owns, the, according to Psalm 5010, he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. There's nothing too big for him. There's nothing that he cannot accomplish. But we need to have a correct view of our possessions of where we're at. He goes on to say, all life is ours. Everything in Christ, we have a new life. Genuine life we have in Christ. It's a quality of life that will never tarnish, it'll never diminish, it'll never be lost. And God owns, uh, God's own life is in us now. So we have life, and it says even death is ours. What does that mean? Death mean, it means that death has been conquered by Christ. And so death has no rule over us anymore. Yes, we could physically die, our earthly bodies, but spiritually we will not die. We have eternal life. So even death is ours because it has been conquered by Christ. That's an amazing thing. Things to come are ours, it says. This reference here is not primarily, if at all, to the future of our present lives, but to an eternity that God has promised us in Christ that he has gone to prepare a place for us. Right now, he's doing that for his children. That's an amazing thing. So, we need to have a correct view of our possessions, of what we have. Not just physical possessions, but our position. Number four is the correct view of our possessor. The correct view of our possessor. And it says, and you belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God. As believers, we are all on the same team. We're all on the same team. Yes, we have different, we live in different houses, we have different upbringings, we wear different clothes, we have different hairstyles. We're all on the same team. Because we are all grounded in the truth of this book right here, the truth of God's word. That's the mindset that we're to have. By far the most important requirement to overcoming division is having the right view of, view of our possessor, Jesus Christ. He is himself the source of all spiritual unity and the source for healing division within the church. He is the source. It is in taking our eyes off him that division begins. When we begin to put our eyes on ourselves or on our circumstances or on our possessions, physical possessions, or our likes or dislikes or our biases or our motives, that's when division starts. Instead of saying no, I'm going to keep my eyes focused on the truth of God's word and God's goals and his purposes and his plans. The greatest possible motive for maintaining the unity of the spirit and for avoiding church division is knowing that we belong to Christ and that Christ belongs to God. So 
A was change your thinking. A was change your thinking. B is change your perspective of pastors. Change your perspective of pastors. This is when we get into the first five verses of chapter four. And really you could say change your perspective of pastors or spiritual leaders. Spiritual leaders. It says, let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ. So Paul, the issue was you had three guys that people were saying, well, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm a follower of Cephas. And they were causing divisions within the church. Paul says, let me change your perspective of how you're to view us, me and Peter and Apollos. Let me tell you how you're to view us. And this is important for us to understand because we have leaders that we follow. We have people that we pursue and want to mimic. We want to be like Tom. We want to be like Justin. We want to be like Jonathan. Rocky. Some people want to be like Seth. I don't know. No, um, we want to pursue and mimic what they do and how they lead and how they guide us. 1 Corinthians 4, 1 through 5 focuses on the true nature and marks of God's ministers, what they are about. It sets forth the basic guidelines and standards by which the ministers minister and to be evaluated. So, number one is the identity of the minister. When am I supposed to end? Uh, 10.30. 10.30 or 10.40? 10.30. 10.30, okay, good. All right, we're going to very quickly go through these four points. The identity of the minister. Let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ. That us means that we are, we are to view ministers as servants of Jesus Christ. We're not to elevate them to a place, a status above what they are supposed to be. Because they said, hey, view us, the apostles of Jesus Christ and Apollos, two apostles of Jesus, as servants of Christ. That's what we are. We're not here to promote ourselves. We're not here to promote anything other than the truth of God's word. A servant means literally under rowers. If you were on a boat back in that day and they had the oars that came out the bottom, the lowest level servants... We're the guys on the oars, because it's all they did all day. We're here or, on the oar. We're oaring all day long. That's all they did. That was their job. And he said, view us as that. We are here doing nothing but here's God's word. Here's God's word. Here's the truth of God's word. Here's the truth of God's word. That is it. I have no purpose other than I am a servant. I'm a slave. I'm an under rower of the truth of God's word. We're servants of Jesus Christ. And then he says, we are stewards of God's ministry, uh, mysteries. That stewards means a house manager. Somebody that I'm here doing nothing but managing my master's property. That's all I'm here to do is I'm here to manage what God has given. And I'm just going to pr promote it and make sure that it's promoted to you every single day. And that is it. And that's the way we're to be viewed. I know that one of the things that Tom talks about in teacher training is he said, as a pastor, I'm not creating a meal. I don't have to take this and go, huh, let me come up with something really interesting that you guys will listen to and pay attention to and not fall asleep. That's not my goal. My goal is God has created the meal. And he uses the analogy, he says, 
All I am is a waiter. My goal is to get it from the kitchen to the table without messing it up. That's what I got to do. And I love that analogy. That's what Paul was saying. We are nothing but stewards of God's word. And we are his slaves. And all I'm here to do is to get it from the, the meal from the kitchen to the table without messing it up. And that's the way I'm to be viewed. Number two is the requirement of the minister. It says, in this case, moreover, it is required of the stewards that they be found trustworthy. The most important thing that a pastor can be is trustworthy with the handling of God's word. That is the mindset to have towards pastors that we need to be looking for. He is entrusted with the master's household and possessions, and without faithfulness, he will ruin both. He's got to be faithful to the truth of the word and trustworthy with it. Number three, the evaluation of the minister. When we love to do this, we love to judge people. We love to evaluate people. Um, Who's better, Jordan or LeBron? Uh, You know, Jordan. But we love to evaluate We love to analyze, and we do that with pastors too. Well, I didn't like the way he did this, and I don't know if he did this right or this correct. We're constantly evaluating. Paul's saying, hey, when you look at Paul, and you look at Peter, and you look at Apollos, let me tell you what. He says, but to me it is a very small thing that I should be examined by you. Sounds kind of arrogant. It's a very small thing that I should be examined. analyzed by you. Here's the thing. As a pastor, you're going to have people that praise you and encourage you, and you're going to have people that try to knock you down and discourage you, say negative things about you. You're going to get both. And Paul's saying, hey, my focus is not on making you happy. My focus is not making sure that you walk out of here feeling like you were at the country club and had a great time hanging out with your buddies and friends. My goal is to preach God's word. Remember, I just said I'm a servant. I'm a slave. I'm a steward. I'm nothing else. And if you don't like it, or if you do like it, that's between you and God. So don't worry about evaluating me. Now, Now, he has said in the past, this isn't saying don't come and say if there's something wrong that I need to adjust, I'll adjust. He said that other places in Scripture. He wasn't bragging about himself. He was just saying, hey, that's not my focus. It's a very small thing. To be examined means to investigate, to question. He can, others can evaluate him. That's fine. But his own evaluation of himself didn't even matter. He was saying, your evaluation of me doesn't matter as long as I'm being faithful to God's Word. My own evaluation of myself, it doesn't even matter. Paul said, I could be saying, hey, I'm great. I'm perfect. I have no sin. But that really doesn't matter because God's the one that I'm, is going to judge me that I need to be focused on. Um, so he talks about God's evaluation. Ultimately, aligning ourselves, and I'm going to make this one last statement and we're going to close. The challenge for the Corinthians was to align their thinking with the truth of God's word and not allow their thinking to be dictated by their own perspective, their own bias, their own judgment, their own worldly views. And that's what the challenge was. And that applies to division in the church, but it also applies to every aspect of our lives. The way we think, the way we allow ourselves to think, 
what we allow to influence our thinking has to be judged. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the the challenge from the truth of your word that we have to adjust our thinking. Father, we recognize that our thinking is so wrong so many times because we live in a sinful world and we allow the influences of this world to affect our thinking and our perspective and our biases and our judgment and our discernment. Father, we pray that you would use the truth of your word to purify our minds and our hearts, that you would use it to sanctify us. Father, we commit ourselves to you and pray that you would allow us to be used as um, disciples within this church, that we would be uh, bearing one another's burdens, encouraging one another, and, Father, growing in the likeness of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in our actions, in our words, and in our thinking. We ask and pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.